my name is Mike, by the way. I'm one of the leaders here. And um, welcome to City Gates. If you are here, obviously, live and in person, great to see you. Uh, if you're in a watch party, fantastic to that you're a part of uh, our church gathering that way as well. If you're online watching the sermon, um, enjoy. Uh, trust that uh, you'll get something out of it. So, um, as I mentioned, I'm one of the leaders here, pretty much actually the only current elder that's around. <laughs> uh, Vic, who leads the church currently, is on a much-needed sabbatical in um, uh, wherever he is. I actually don't know where he is, uh, but he's somewhere sabbat- sabbaticaling, uh, and, uh, which is cool. And Toby and Loretta are in Calgary as of right now uh, on their way via family members to uh, Cornell to spend a few days with Lawrence and Liz to check out the lie of the land. So um, there's going to be some serious Acts 20 moments when they leave, you know, when Paul left the Ephesian elders and and that picture, which I always loved, where they all knelt down and wept and, you know, that's later, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it's going to be a tough one, but... um, Anyway, uh, that's the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, we got Courtney here who's doing a great job with our admin, and uh, we have a fantastic deacon team who are willing and available, so I'm confident we're in good hands. Now, um, the last couple of years, we have been quite formal in our approach to Lent, and uh, this year we haven't done it for a number of reasons, um, but we're still encouraging you to practice the process of Lent privately. Um, and for those of you who are not familiar with it, just think it's some religious term. Lent is, is a period of 40 days which comes before Easter uh, in the Christian calendar, begins on Ash Wednesday. Uh, it's a season of reflection and preparation for Easter, before the celebration of Easter. And by observing the 40 days of Lent, Christians are basically replicating Jesus' sacrifice and, uh, and withdrawal into the desert for 40 days. And so it's characterized by personal sacrifice and reflection. Now, one of the reasons that we're not formally uh, running this uh, Lent devotional um, is because I'm the only guy here. No, that's not the reason. (laughs) Uh, It's because uh, a number of us are actually currently engaged in a daily devotional called Seeing Jesus Together. And uh, and we want to dedicate ourselves to this as a primary uh, with, as a possible precursor to a, a larger church rollout. And we'll, we'll talk about it when the time comes. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But the early returns are very encouraging. And, um, and if you do want to pick up some of our uh, previous Lent devotionals, um, Courtney, our great admin girl at the back there, wave Courtney. <laughs> we'll send out a link for those and you can hook up to those and do those as well. All right, so I'm going to be starting in Judges. I am going to roll the, uh, the Bible Project video because I think it gives a great overview of uh, Judges, and then I'm going to get into the content. So let's roll. The Book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the Promised Land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. 
The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in, and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now, the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who help the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle. And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. 
And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note here. You'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is a result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. Right. I think they just do a fabulous job of uh, <clears throat> giving you a quick synopsis of the book, um, way better than I could for sure. I love that last line that he shared where he said a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And so what we have in Judges, uh, Judges is picking up the history of the children of Israel. Uh, now that his former leader, Joshua, is dead, as Toby talked about uh, last week. And God had told Joshua 
Uh, don't have to turn here. Back in uh, Joshua 13, verse 1, he says, You are old, you are advanced uh, in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. So the people of Israel, I guess, technically owned the land, but they still hadn't possessed it all, and therefore they couldn't enjoy it all. And so Judges is kind of this, this next stage of their journey of conquest. Uh, started under uh, this leadership of Joshua, as we said, but there were still nations that needed to be removed, and that was by design. If you wouldn't mind turning to Judges chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Um, again, I'm, my Bible is here. I do have my notes because I want to keep putting my, gla- taking, putting my glasses on and off, which is what I'm trying to do here. And so um, I'm going to cheat by reading off my computer, but uh, if you have your uh, Bible, please turn there. Judges chapter 3, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. And, you know, so God knew that as a nation, Israel would be fighting wars for their entire existence. And so this new generation, remember, this is not the first generation, the children. This is now the children of the children that we're talking about in Judges. So, you know, what's amazing is, I mean, let's look at a present day example. There are children in our worlds that think that they they don't know going to school without a mask on. Right? They just don't. That's because they've been here for two years. They've never gone to school without a mask on. So for them, that's normal. And, you know, for us, we're like, we just can't get, wait to go back to normal. They're like, whoa, this is normal. In fact, I'll pick my grandson, grandson up, and he's in the back, and I'm like, you can take your mask off now. He goes, no, I like it. <laughs> like, who says that? No adult, no adult says that. <laughs> so this, this whole fighting thing, when, when, when Edrian and I were in Israel a few years ago, we ended up, we went to the Golan Heights, and we had lunch with some of the soldiers. It was very fascinating. And these soldiers were not like my visual of soldiers. Some of them had come from Boston, and they'd come from other beautiful, prosperous cities, come back to Israel knowing that they would be engaged in national service. And there were young ladies, you know, 18, 19 years old, carrying, you know, submachine guns. And we just had a chance to sit around with them. And you realized, you know, they are a besieged country. That's how they think. They're fighters. Israelis are fighters because they've had to fight to survive. And so God, if God had just made it easy for them, they would never have carried the DNA of war through to the next generation. And they needed to carry that, that DNA through because they've always been persecuted and always been forced. So it was an interesting experience for me. So this book is amazing because I'm really going to start at chapter 1, verse 1, and end at chapter 20, what is it, 21? 20, what's the last one? 2125. So basically the first verse and the last verse is my summary of, of, of uh, Judges. So turn to Judges 1.1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So they started off well. They started off saying, you know, we need to inquire of the Lord because Joshua is not here anymore. That's a good beginning. And we ended up at the end in Judges 21-25, where we see absolutely the opposite. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. How did inquiring of the Lord become everyone doing what is right in their own eyes? In their own eyes. And that's the story of Judges. How did they get there? Well, somehow they lost their identity. You know, they lost the big picture. And when we lose the big picture, the small picture in front of our eyes becomes our big picture. You know, there's a guy that I meet at the gym. And every time I ask him how he is, he tells me. Somebody once said, the definition of boring is asking someone how they are, and I'm telling you. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that. Somebody else said that. Um, so what I mean, so what he tells me, he gives me his laundry list of health ailments um, that, he, that he knows intimately. And, um, and his sickliness has kind of become his identity. So I know how easy that is. I'm not, I'm not criticizing him. So I know, especially if you do have a sickness or a situation in your life or a problem with a family member or you're going through a tough time in your marriage or whatever. Look, I understand those are very difficult things. And there is an easy tendency for those to become the big story in our lives. But when we look at it from a 50,000-foot view, it's even the difficult current moments we're facing are a relatively small story in comparison to the big story. And I'm not minimizing whatever story you're dealing with in your life currently. So here's some obvious things, I think, that really three things I've highlighted from the book of Judges that I think will be helpful to us as to how their identity was stolen. First of all, they were the victim of, number one, a leadership transition. So Israel is kind of moving towards king, having you know King David's reign via Saul. And Lucy's going to be talking about Ruth next week, which is going to be awesome, and talking about how David's you know David's uh, family lines. But they've come on, kind of kind of come out of the prophet priest thing, and and they're in this middle awkward stage, and it's not that short. Acts 13 says it's about 450 years. And there's people that dispute that, but this judge's period of rulership is a long time. Anywhere from 390 to 450, depends who you read. There's all kinds of theories around it. But Acts Acts 13 says around 450 years. So it's a long period of time. Um, And Joshua 24. So let me talk about these two reasons why I think leadership transition was important and, and effective. Number one, Joshua 24, 31. Don't turn there. We'll turn to the judges section. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So while Joshua was alive and his leadership team that had his DNA, they served the Lord. Compare Judges 2.10. And maybe, maybe you can turn over to that. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he'd done for Israel. These were the kids in school wearing masks. They, had, they, didn't, they hadn't gone through Joshua's reign. They hadn't seen what Joshua had seen. They, they, all the elders... They were a new generation that um, 
did not know the Lord or the work that was done for Israel. So they started off right. They said, we better inquire of this Lord that we know not of. Because otherwise, who knows what's going to happen? And so they started off well. So they were disconnected from the history. Um, Joshua and the elders had been their parents' leadership voices. And now there was going to be this long period uh, where this, a series of judges would become their primary voices. And as we saw in the, uh, in the video we, just there, there were many ups and downs in that process and mostly downs, unfortunately. Now, the interesting thing is that when we look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is a very well-known chapter. I'm sure you've all read it. Brian, is that okay I said that? I'm sure you've all read Hebrews chapter 11. Okay. All right. Um, if you want to flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, I'm, I'm just going to show you something because four of these judges are mentioned, um, well, three and a half, I guess, are mentioned in, in the book of Hebrews. And when we look at Hebrews, Hebrews is such a fantastic book. We've almost gone into it every single week we've been, we've been uh, sharing. But Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the Faith Hall of Fame. Um, has anyone ever been to a, a Hall of Fame of any kind? Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland? I haven't. Uh, <laughs> I, have been, I have been to the Baseball Hall of Fame in, in Cooperstown. And uh, the interesting thing is, you know, there's all these kind of... Re- it's, don't take your kids. It's super boring. I thought the kids would love it. It was super boring. It's a b- bunch of wax figures standing like this with a glove and like a uniform on and, and plaques. I mean, that's it. There's really not a whole lot more that I remember anyway. Um, but it's a hall of fame. But actually, when you, when, you, when you find the stories behind the stories, there's some pretty unsavory characters in the baseball hall of fame. Like Ty Cobb admitted to killing somebody uh, it's been disputed they they're not sure if he uh, if he was elaborating just for uh, you know whatever for glamour purposes but he did publicly admit to killing someone and he's in the baseball hall of fame so we'll see so so that gives you an idea you're in the baseball hall of fame because you're a good baseball player not necessarily because you have great character And so Hebrews 11, look to verse 32 and 34. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, all those four mentioned in Judges, uh, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight. What a... Man, I don't know. I just feel like grabbing a sword and running through a window or something. I don't know what's going on. I just feel inspired. Uh, but look at these guys that he mentions here. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Gideon was a coward and a cold-blooded murderer. Barak rode the coattails of Deborah, the prophetess and judge. He even really wasn't a judge. That's why he said half. Uh, but he said, like his, his classic line, I'm only going if you're going to Deborah. Like, I, I'm nothing against ladies. I'm I'm a big proponent of women's power, but in those days, <laughs> that would not be very admirable for a guy to say, "I'm only going if you go, Deborah." And then he got whacked by a woman to make it even worse for him. Uh, the pro, um, and uh, Samson, well, Samson was Samson. You know the story. Um, and Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. Even though God asked, did never, never asked him to do that. 
So you're looking at these guys and they're not like, these are not stellar examples that I want to model my life after, but they're in the, they're in the hall, faith hall of fame. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came upon these men of terrible character to defeat Israel's enemies in response to the cries of the children of Israel that wanted mercy. In summary, God uses sinners. Period. Period. Not because they earned it. They were men of terrible character and God used them. The Holy Spirit came upon them for a mission and then, and then they were, in most cases, went into destruction. Somebody wrote this. Unlike Moses, who appointed Joshua to lead Israel, the judges didn't have the authority to appoint a successor. When God called men and women to serve as judges, they obeyed, did his work, and then passed from the scene. One would hope that their godly influence would make a lasting difference in the spiritual life of the nation, but such wasn't the case. No sooner was a judge off the scene than the people were back to worshiping Baal and forsaking the Lord. This cycle that it talked about in the video of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, and God graciously kept appearing, kept uh, arriving on the scene and, and delivering Israel from their pain. So what was missing? You know, God had given Moses and Joshua guardrails for the children of Israel that included a system of feasts and sacrifices to remind them of his big story. And you know, Israel did not even celebrate Passover during this period of history. So basics commands that God gave them for feast celebration and remembrances were not followed because they did not know the God of their fathers. And they were now just trying to figure it out, but that sinful nature kept winning out. Another commentary, the priests possessed a copy of the book of Deuteronomy and were commanded to read it publicly to the nation every sabbatical year during the Feast of Tabernacles. Had they been faithful to do their job, the spiritual leaders would have read Deuteronomy 7 and warned the Israelites not to spare their pagan neighbors. The priests also would have reminded the people of God's promises that he would help them to defeat their enemies. It was by receiving and obeying the book of the law that Joshua had grown in faith and courage. And that same word would have enabled the new generation to overcome their enemies and claim their inheritance. Instead, we have even those that were going to lead in Judges full of doubt. Don't turn this. In Judges 6, when, when Gideon is called, Gideon said to God, Please, sir, sounds like Oliver. <laughs> please, sir, more gruel. Uh, please, sir, if the, <laughs> if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Isn't that the question so many people ask? Isn't that like the, like the question of the Christian or the question of the person who's looking at Christianity? If God is with us, why has that happened to us? You know, if, God's, if God is with you, why is that happening to you? Because somehow we painted a picture that being a Christ follower means you go from this terrible life to this amazing life in this world. There's no guarantees of that. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. We just have a different um, handling mechanism now. We just have a different worldview that allows us to hold on to a big picture while the whole world is focusing on the latest small picture. So we have, 
we have the ability to go for the long haul because we know that our reward is not in this world only. And that's what allows us to, to live with the end in mind. We live today with the end in mind. If you are, if you are uh, not a Christian, you are living today with today in mind. Like, is there anything sadder, seriously sadder, than watching those Hollywood stars age and try and not age? Like, I know you've had work, sister. <laughs> like, like, and brother. So, because, but if I was them, I would be in the clinic. I'd get rid of my bad English teeth. I would do all those things, right? If I was those guys, because that's my identity. That's what I am. Like, what happens when that's gone? Who am I? Who am I when I'm not being called by, by, uh, by the, the latest producer to come and appear in, in, you know, in a movie? Who am I? Because I'm not that guy anymore. Now I'm going to do infomercials? <laughs> Seriously? Dr. Ho? <laughs> so the first reason why inquiring of the Lord ended up becoming everyone doing what was right in their own eyes was because leadership was inconsistent. It changed. The second reason, I've only got three. The second reason is assimilation and emulation. Two big words that end in Asian. Assimilation and emulation. They were not only in Canaan. They were not only in Canaan but they became of Canaan. Not only were they in it, they became of it. And uh, someone wrote, the Jews eventually became so accustomed to the sinful ways of their pagan neighbors that those ways didn't seem sinful anymore. Hard to believe, right? The Jews then became interested in how their neighbors worshipped until finally Israel started to live like their enemies and imitate their ways. The main deity in Canaan was Baal, god of rainfall and fertility, and Ashtoreth was his spouse. If you wanted to have fruitful orchards and vineyards, flourishing crops and increasing flocks and herds, this was the sacrifice you had to make. You had to worship Baal by visiting a temple prostitute. This combination of idolatry, immorality, and agricultural success was difficult for men to resist. I wonder why. So as you read through chapter 1 of Judges, you keep seeing they did not drive out the nations, or they could not drive out the nations. And as a result, they lived among the inhabitants of Canaan. Uh, alas, somebody else wrote, instead of trusting God to change their neighbors, the gods of their neighbors changed the Jews. And everything Moses warned them not to do, they did. The Jews broke down the wall of separation between themselves and their godless neighbors, and the results were tragic. Contrary to God's law, Jewish men married pagan wives, and Jewish women married pagan husbands, and the idolaters gradually stole the hearts of their mates from worshiping Jehovah to worshiping false gods. Now, I think this is pretty self-explanatory. 
It reminds me uh, in the book of Nehemiah when the Jews, at the end of it, you see the Jews intermarrying uh, with, uh, with these pagan nations. And the results were that half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and couldn't speak the language of Judah. So you imagine, I mean, Nehemiah is such an epic book of restoration and, and you know, and Esther, fantastic books we're going to get to in a bit. But, you know, what happened was, despite all that was happening, this, they started compromising what God had told them to do. They started intermarrying. And before they knew it, the next generation was completely confused. Didn't even speak Hebrew. Were speaking, um, or Aramaic, they were speaking the language of Ashdod, not the language of Judah. Assimilation and emulation is assimilation. Obviously, when we get absorbed into it, emulation is where we copy it. It's a slow slide at first. It starts off slowly. But before long, Israel found herself, she's transitioned from inquiring of the Lord to doing what was right in her own eyes. That's how, how dramatic the slide becomes and uh, was plunged into moral, spiritual, and political disaster. And so the final reason uh, for the slide was disobedience. So we've got government issues or leadership issues. We've got um, assimilation and emulation. And the last one is disobedience. And I know we all struggle with what seems like the barbaric commands, commands rather, of God to obliterate the Canaanites. I know it sounds like, you know, oh, how can we serve a God who wipes out cities? We've all heard those arguments. You know, it is, it is awful. But the reality is, as Toby shared last week, God had been patient with these pagan nations. Um, but they refused to renounce their idols, and they still practiced rituals like child sacrifice. They were barbaric themselves. And God knew. He knew that if Israel didn't drive them out and away, they would change Israel, not the other way around. He knew it. So it was like, I want, you are my people. You are, you are the carriers of the promise. He was, you know, he was looking at them with us in mind all these years later. And so he's saying, in order for this story, this big story to keep going, you need to drive out. All of those people, if not, they will corrupt you. You will not influence them. And so that's why God told people that wouldn't repent. He said, I need you to utterly destroy them. And uh, so by their disobedience, the nation of Israel made it clear that they wanted the Canaanites to remain in the land. God let them have their way, but he warned them of the tragic consequences. The nations in the land of Canaan would become thorns, uh, uh, thorns that would afflict Israel and traps that would ensnare them. Israel would look to the Canaanites for pleasures, but would only experience pain. They would rejoice in their freedom only to see that freedom turn into bondage. Israel's disobedience came at a absolutely came with a massive cost. And sadly, it was a cycle that repeated itself through the entire Old Testament. Okay, so I conclude with a few practical takeaways for us. And I think I think all of us are in this boat. So many of us, when we became Christ followers or, or early days in our walk, 
we started out well. We were those who inquired of the Lord. I remember my early days of being a Christian, like we inquired, you know, should I eat pork or should I eat, you know, shrimp today, Lord? I mean, we, we inquired, and he said neither because they're unclean. Leviticus, no. <laughs> he said, go with the iguana. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, well, I mean, we inquired of the Lord. That was our lifestyle. Inquiring of the Lord was how we lived our lives. Uh, but so many of us find ourselves moving into doing what is right in our own eyes. And it's so subtle. But, you know, I always talk about the cross. What was the cross? The cross was the place in history where, where God's will intersected man's will. Jesus said, I don't want to go here, but nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And the crosses intersects our life where our will and God's will meet. And we have to look at that cross every day and say, it's not what I want, but what you want. And many of us have learned to enjoy the trappings of Christianity, the, ex- the surplus elements of Christianity, the communion, all those wonderful things. We enjoy that. But on a heart level, we're still doing what's right in our own eyes. How we handle our money, how we handle our relationships, how we date, whether we do sex before marriage. I mean, whatever our deal is, we're doing those things because that's right in our own eyes. But we kind of live and enjoy the trappings of one element. But we have an issue, a hard issue, as the children of Israel had. And we need to get back to being those who inquire of the Lord, not those who live by what is right in our own eyes. It's a journey back to the first verse of Judges, and a journey away from the last verse of Judges. So, we, Israel, have had no king. We have a king. We have a king. We have an intimate relationship with the king of Israel. That with the king that sorry, with the king that Israel only reached out to when their small G gods failed them. We have an intimate relationship with capital G God. Jesus is both our leader and he's our brother. And the way that we stop the slide into the last verse of Judges, doing what is right in our own eyes, is by living today, as Toby talked about in the first verse of Judges inquiring of the Lord. That's how we do it. When we prioritize a gathering like this, we are inquiring of the Lord. When we gather in community groups and preach the gospel to each other, we are inquiring of the Lord. When we wake up in the morning and choose our Bibles over our phones, we are inquiring of the Lord. When we pray alone or with our spouse or with our community like tomorrow night, we are inquiring of the Lord. Those are the guardrails we have. Moses gave guardrails. The children of Israel put the guardrails down and they fell into destruction. We have guardrails, guys. And when we allow those guardrails to to be operational, we're not always going to not do what is right in our own eyes, but we're always going to have this yearning in our heart to inquire of the Lord. And when we live as inquirers with those guardrails of community, with the scriptures and prayer, we become ambassadors and not emulators. 
We learn how to live in the world, but not be of the world. An ambassador should love the country uh, and the people of the country they're in, but they never forget who they're representing. Never. I don't love the country more than I love the one who I'm representing. We love those around us, but we are different. We answer to a king who saved us despite ourselves and wants us to tell the whole world that their small g-gods will always disappoint and hurt them. And so we're obedient. We're not called to destroy nations anymore and drive out people. We're called to live among them as salt and light. The Great Commission is not a great suggestion. It's a, com- it's a command to take the message of hope and salvation through Jesus into our uh, own Jerusalems, Judea, Samarias, and the ends of the earth. That's why Alaris and Liz have chosen to go and live in a rather obscure uh, British Columbian town and lay their lives down so that others may also experience the freedom of the gospel. And that's why Toby and Loretta and their family are going to do the same. And that's why the gospel keeps spreading through an increasingly hostile and dark world. Because people like you and I say, there's a bigger story than my current life story. How do I connect to it? Judges helps me and I hope us see the big story, the one story again, as it is. And a reminder of what uh, the... uh, videographer said in in that earlier viewing, a sobering explanation of the human condition and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. Um, Boy, we are so privileged to have been rescued. So privileged to have been rescued and not be live not live in those cycles. We don't have to live in those cycles, guys, of, of defeat and restoration and defeat and restoration. We don't have to live like that. And so, um, yeah, pretty much done. <laughs> um, the commission that I will give you is I will read you the Great Commission again because I think the response to judges is the Great Commission for me anyway. I will put my glasses on for the first time if Justin is betting. <clears throat> How many times I put my glasses on and off? I do not want to make money on my behalf. Matthew chapter 16, several different versions of this, but let's read Mark. Sorry, Mark chapter 16. What am I reading? I'm not reading Mark 16, right? Mark 16, verse 15. Yes, of course I am. And he says, go into the whole world. I have this complete mental blank there. Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, verse 15. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, etc. 
So this commission, this commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel is the commission to every Christ follower. It's not just to Lawrence and Liz. It's not just to Toby and Loretta or Vic or me or anybody else. It's to you. Who's in your Jerusalem? Who's in your Samaria? That means Jerusalem is the people around you, um, Samaria, etc. So these kind of ever-increasing circles out of your life. Nobody in your world should be safe from hearing the gospel. Lovingly, wisely, uh, and engagingly. So can we go out and do that? So let me conclude by praying for us. Um, if there is, if there are people, and again, I want to emphasize that I talked about small story, big story. I do want to emphasize that I know that if you're going through a difficult time in your life, it is a big story. So I'm not trying to minimize that. Your pain is real. It's a genuine battle and challenge you're going through. And we're here to join you with you and pray with you and believe God for, for you getting through that. So I, I just want to reemphasize that. But I also want to give you hope and encouragement that there is even a bigger story that somehow will get you through your current big story. So let me pray and then we'll conclude. Father, I, I want to thank you for the story that we've read through, through Judges. And, and Lord, I... I want to live as an inquirer, as against someone who lives uh, doing what's right in my own eyes. And I'm sure many would echo that. So Holy Spirit, would you help us to take your great commission, be ambassadors, live a bigger story, and not live our lives in cycles of defeat, uh, as we saw in Judges. We want to thank you for that today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a terrific day. Watch party, live, live viewers. Have an awesome day, and look forward to seeing you at prayer tomorrow night. God bless.